Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. Before we jump in today, I want to just say up front that today's material might cause you to think about creation and evolution, the book of Genesis and science. And that is actually for a separate day. We are going to get there. But I just want to say up front, we aren't getting there today so that you're not wondering, when are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? Okay, let's jump in. Some people encounter their faith getting rocked when they read an article or they watch a documentary about archaeology uh, and archaeologists who have made discoveries that just don't line up with the way the Bible said that something happened. Or they experience their faith getting rocked when they start reading their own Bible and they read a bizarre or unimaginable story in their Bible, like fruit trees with special powers or a talking snake or people who live for hundreds of years or burning bushes that talk or fires that come out of the sky Rocks that follow people around in the desert and pour water out of them. Seas that part so people can walk through. Talking donkeys. A guy that gets swallowed by a giant fish and lives, etc. And in a quiet moment of honesty, they ask, Did that really happen? Is that a true story? And that question is kind of like a mini earthquake. It causes a crack in their foundation, and that crack spider webs out. And it's, well, if the Bible says something happened that archaeologists or scientists say probably didn't happen, then what part of the Bible can I really take seriously? Now, remember, 18% of the doubts that were shared in our church family were actually connected to the Bible and science, archeology, span history. And so this is one of the very real earthquakes that rocks people's faith. And people tend towards one of two extremes when they encounter this earthquake. They either move towards The Bible is 100% historically verifiable and accurate. They want to prove the science. Or they move towards, I can't trust this thing. The Bible is all just a bunch of lies. So the move towards the Bible is 100% historically verifiable is a defensive move. It's bolstering themselves with evidence that they can find that says, look, it happened just the way it says it happened. And when people go this direction, they tend to ignore and reject any evidence that says, well, maybe it was a little different. 
And so that move is kind of like pouring a bunch of concrete into a foundation to protect against an earthquake. And so that'd be the movement towards the one side. The other movement is basically giving up on faith altogether. If you can't trust the Bible, then this is just a waste of time. And so they make this mistake. They treat the Bible like the foundation of their faith. And because they can't trust it, now they disappear from church gatherings. They stop praying, all because an archaeologist said that we've been digging the site of Jericho for 100 years and we haven't found any walls that crumbled, or whatever it is they say. Now, remember, we are seeking to build an earthquake-ready faith, and the way to do that is to have rollers in your foundation so that when the earth moves under your feet, you can move with it. And so today, more than giving you exact answers, I am trying to help you see angles and perspectives that can help your very real questions from shaking your faith to the point that it just cracks and breaks. So if the question is, all right, can the Bible be verified by modern archaeology and historians? Well, the, the answer is yes and no in this way. And this is a very simplified answer, but it would go like this. So a whole lot of the story of Israel's failed monarchy, the long list of kings and their exile, has been verified by archaeology and historians. So, uh, like 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. We can say, yeah, a lot of those stories line up with stories that we can find uh, about kings and kingdoms of the time. So, check. Uh, which also gives us a lot, but not all, of the poetry and prophetic writing from the time as well. So we'll give that not as strong of a check, but a check. Jesus is a historical figure, has massive evidence, check. Uh, there's still debate and discussion for sure about uh, you know, what did Jesus say and teach? But as a historical figure, check. Israel's origin stories, Genesis, Exodus, the conquest stories, those are the stories that are up for serious debate with archaeologists and historians, historical criticism. The origin stories are ancient compilations. They appear to have come together over an extensive period of time, uh, edited and put together much later, collected from generations who had handed down stories from previous generations. Now, we, we start with, yeah, but didn't the Apostle Paul say that all scripture is God-breathed? That's 2 Timothy 3.16. So, why wouldn't the archaeology just line up? Well, perhaps, and there's a lot of different ways to come at this, but 
perhaps a better question is what part of life is not God breathed uh, in God we live and move and have our being Acts 17 28 God speaks everything into existence without God all creation simply would cease to exist what part of life is not God breathed and so God allows a wide diversity of people to tell God's story and they all tell that story from their own vantage point look at it this way so imagine that you gave a bunch of people the privilege of telling your story from their vantage point so you are not writing your own autobiography you are inviting your brother your sister, your spouse, your kids, your neighbors, your church family, your friends to write that biography. And then they're going to hand that story down to generations down the line, kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, etc. And they are going to tell that story. So what's going to happen if you're not if you're not just writing it, if you're just telling it, what's going to happen to all those stories? Well, I'll answer from my perspective. So how many times might people telling my story misunderstand me? My brother would turn me into a legend in some ways. He'd make me larger than life in some ways, but he would also be sure to point out the places where he's better than me. <laughs> uh, my wife, Molly, might include some of the glowing things about me that most people don't get to see, but she could, possibly would, I'll certainly say could, include some pretty ugly stories, some of my worst moments, the stories that I'd rather leave out. But maybe she'd put them in there, who knows? My kids would probably recount various things that I said or did in ways that I might say, mm, you're embellishing that story. That's not exactly how it happened. And the reason I know that they would do this is because when I go home and visit my folks and we start telling stories, this is what my folks say that I'm doing. They say, that's not how it happened. And I say, yes, it is. So. That would go on. And I also imagined that my kids might tell stories about, well, dad let me do this, but he didn't let you do that, or uh, vice versa. And on the one hand, my kids might frame me as the best dad there ever was. And on the other hand, they might have some stories that make me sound like a pretty terrible dad. Stories that I'd say, ah, can we just cut that story out? People in our church family, if I allowed them to tell my story from their vantage point, they might include a story or two about a very meaningful experience with me, but they might also share some stories that would point out where they think I'm missing it or not getting it right, or have a blind spot. Also, I can't tell you how many times someone has said, uh, hey, you know when you said this, 
and then they quote something that they think I said in a sermon back to me, and I cannot remember saying it. And that's not on them, and it's not on me. I think it's simply a dynamic of communication. And so how might that impact people telling their experience of me? And then you have to wonder, what would happen to all of my miracle stories, all of my God experiences? How would those be relayed? So things like the fact that I shouldn't have even been born alive. I was a three-pound baby uh, born six weeks early. My twin sister was eating me out of house and home. Uh, Or the time I unwittingly stoked the fireplace before bed and nearly asphyxiated. My brother just happened to wake up in the night and we we didn't die in our sleep. Uh, could have gone very different. Or the time that I was stranded on my own and my truck wouldn't start and I prayed and then it started. Kind of a God moment. Uh, or the time that I was hiking with my sister and she started to become hypothermic and God moved the trail what would happen to that story or the story of God healing my ankle or the story of the couple times I ended up in the hospital, the story of the doctor telling me he was 95% sure that I had bacterial meningitis and probably had 48 hours to live or the story of quite a number of kind of random people telling me I should apply to Neatart's friend's church. Uh, the story of God healing my memories and speaking to me in a dramatic way. There's a lot of different stories. And if I invited a whole bunch of people in my life to tell my story from their vantage point, each one would tell a slightly different story and a slightly different memory of what I had relayed to them. And each story would be told from a certain perspective with a certain slant and tilt and bias. And various storytellers might be working out their own emotional issues with my life and how my life relates to something going on in their life and the world around them. And they may or may not correctly understand my intentions. And decisions would be made about what to include and what to leave out. And some aspects of who I am would be underplayed and others would be overplayed. And some stories would be larger than life and others would get kind of distorted. And even given if you let all these different people tell my story and you kind of combined them all, all of those stories together still wouldn't capture my actual real life complete experience. There'd be things left out and omitted and lost in translation because some parts of life are just that ambiguous and hard to capture with words. And then if you pass these stories down through generations, it would be especially interesting to see what happened, especially with my miracle stories. In what ways would those stories grow or change over the years? Each and every storyteller couldn't capture my real spiritual experience. They could only attempt to capture an echo of that real spiritual experience with God, however distant. Each story would offer a slightly 
different picture of Aaron. And we could ask, okay, so which of these stories is true? But just because one story was different than the next, we wouldn't say, oh, you made that one up out of thin air. We wouldn't discount one story because you omitted that other part or you included that part or it's different. We'd simply recognize this is kind of what happens when you let people tell your story from their vantage point. And yes, at the beginning of it all, my real life is God-breathed. There's a real spiritual experience with God that I have lived. And it's ambiguous and messy and alive and numb and scary and beautiful and weird and amazing. And any story that someone would tell about my life could not fully capture that experience with God. So, a discussion question, or if you're catching this uh, on the podcast or YouTube, it's a reflection question unless you've got someone to chat with. Imagine that you allowed a wide diversity of people in your life to tell your story from their vantage point. What might they do with your story? How might the story they told matter? even if it didn't capture everything it means to be you. So take a moment, reflect on that. We run up against this same dynamic in the Bible over and over. Over and over we encounter a story being retold by a new storyteller in a new way. And God ends up being given different names by different storytellers and details are added or changed or omitted because God allows a wide diversity of people to tell God's story They all tell that story from their own vantage point. So a classic example is these two very different versions of the story of Israel's failed monarchy. So version one would be 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. Version two would be 1st and 2nd Chronicles. They tell the same story, but from very different perspectives from their own time, from their own vantage point. So version one is first and second Samuel and first and second Kings. And it's written while the people are in exile. Israel wanted to have a king like everyone else. God said it's a bad idea. The people did it anyway. The kingdom of Israel split over labor, politics, taxes, Go figure. Anyways, there was a southern and a northern kingdom because they split and they ended up being conquered by Assyria and Babylon uh, later. Uh, They ended up taken away into slavery, into exile. And so version one tells this story of every single king of the northern and the southern kingdom And it pretty much picks those kings apart. 
it says what every single king got wrong. And in the first version, David's life, King David, his life is quite a mess. He forces a woman who didn't ask for it into his bed, uh, Bathsheba. That is not a consensual story. As much as you might want to say it is, the power dynamic would say it is not. He impregnates her, and he has her honorable husband murdered. The baby dies. It's a horrible story. And then King David has another child with her, as if now it's okay. And then he tries to hand the kingdom off to that son, Solomon even though the rightful heir to the throne is a different child, Adonijah. And so it's a big political mess. It sets off multiple coup attempts, like let's let's try to use killing within the family. It's within the family to see, you know, who's going to get the throne. Solomon does become king. So once Solomon becomes king, then his big project is to build the temple. And so version one of the story goes on and on telling about all these preparations, all this work, all this organization that is involved in building the temple. And Solomon is the guy who sounds like he deserves a pat on the back for building Israel's temple. So then you move on to version two of the story. Version 2 of the story was written probably several hundred years later, once the southern kingdom, which would be the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, had uh, gone from exile to being able to return to the promised land. Uh, The second version of the story completely leaves out any of the northern kings. Like, we're just not going to talk about them. Because only the southern kingdom was able to return to the promised land. And so we're just going to tell their story. Like, these two tribes are the future. Let's not really talk about the northern kingdom. And so in that version, King David really comes out smelling like a rose. The story of Bathsheba, where he forces himself on her and then murders her husband, that story isn't mentioned. It's omitted. The political mess of trying to hand off the kingdom to the wrong son and all of those coup attempts, those are omitted. Uh, Instead, the second version of the story, which is written, remember, hundreds of years later, adds details, which is weird, adds these details about David's life that kind of make us scratch our heads. Apparently Solomon is the guy who is not the guy who we should pat on the back for building the temple because in Chronicles, Solomon is portrayed as young and inexperienced. First Chronicles 29 says that. And so instead, King David is the guy who is kind of put up on a pedestal And he's responsible for all of the organizing and the fundraising and the planning of the temple building. Apparently, he's the guy who did all the heavy lifting and secured all the materials. And it's kind of confusing. Like, wait, which which one did all the work here? 
it makes it sound like David actually made the cookies and Solomon just took them out of the oven once the timer went off is kind of how version two of the story goes. And so you read these two different versions of the story side by side and they feel kind of different, maybe even jarringly different. Not only do these stories show us God breathing, not only do they show us an echo of a real spiritual experience for the people of Israel and their kings, we can also see real humanity at play. Like in the backdrop, there are cultural reasons that the storytellers have for telling the story in the way they're telling it. They're contrasting their story with the stories of the day, with the laws of the day, with the issues and agendas of the day. What do they need their story to be saying to their audience at that time? Whenever we're telling God's story from our vantage point, we tell it differently based on what's going on with us. So, so in version one, the people were trying to figure out what went wrong with their failed monarchy. And so, of course, all the kings are going to look bad. They're trying to figure out what just happened. They got taken away into exile. But a couple hundred years later, in version number two of the story, yeah, things had gone really belly up. Only half of the kingdom even made it back, the, the southern kingdom. And now they're just ready for a hero story. They need to get back to the good old days. They don't need the story of David the adulterer and the murderer and the political gamer to inspire the people. They need a story of David the king of everyone together and in one temple to inspire the people towards a more hopeful future. So, a discussion or reflection question here. Reflect on God allowing different people to tell God's story in different ways from different vantage points with different and even contrasting details. What about that is comforting? What about that is upsetting? Take a moment with that. We don't always see exactly what the ancient storytellers were trying to accomplish. And so we can end up asking, okay, did that story really happen? Is that true? And when we do that, sometimes we miss the storyteller's point. In our time, in our place, something is only true if we can shoot it with both barrels of the scientific method. And if we shoot something with our scientific method shotgun and it's still standing, then we say, okay, it's true. Because our understanding of true is literal. So we hear that word true and we're thinking, can this story be verified empirically, scientifically, historically? Is it scientifically plausible? But if you ask someone from a different culture, or a different time, 
is that story true? It wouldn't cross all of their minds to give the same story both barrels of the scientific method. They wouldn't apply our modern scientific method to the question. They would ask a more ancient question that goes something like this. They would say, well, does the story give an authentic depiction of reality, of the human experience, of the human condition? And it's fascinating to note Jesus' favorite way of teaching. It was telling stories that never happened, but they depicted something that happens all the time. We call these stories parables. They're valid, eye-opening depictions of the human experience and how God meets people. And the Bible is chock full of writing that is not literal, but yet it's true. So when you take a piece of literature that is true in this ancient sense and was never intended to be shot full of holes using the scientific method, then you end up missing the point. So here's an example. The Bible apparently really, really doesn't like the Ninevites. Nineveh was the capital of the horribly violent Assyrian Empire that controlled Israel, uh, you know, took the people of Israel away into captivity. The book of Nahum is a treatise against Nineveh that basically says, all Assyrians need to die. It declares that God is against Nineveh and is going to make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Nahum 1, verse 7 and 8, which sounds like God, well, it sounds like the prophet, like cursing all Assyrians to hell or something. The prophet Zephaniah calls for God to destroy Nineveh. That's Zephaniah 2.13. Haggai and Zechariah promise these pagan empires are going to be shattered. There are a whole lot of biblical prophets who are against Nineveh. But then along comes the book of Jonah. Whoever wrote it didn't sign their name to it. Perhaps they were too afraid to sign their name to it. It tells an unbelievable story that runs in the opposite direction. It tells the story of this prophet Jonah sent to Nineveh to invite the Ninevites to turn towards God, but Jonah doesn't want to do it. He runs in the opposite direction to the far corner of the world as far as possible from those dirty Ninevites, but a storm comes while he's running. Jonah ends up blaming God for the storm, and he ends up thrown into the sea. He's swallowed by a giant fish, sinks down into death for three days, cries out for help, blames God some more, talks bad about the Ninevites some more. The fish spits him up on dry land. He trudges into Nineveh and threatens them with a god of wrath. It turns out the Ninevites don't really turn out to be as bad as Jonah thought they were. Instead of stringing him up, they listen to him and they turn to God in worship and instead of staying and celebrating this, Jonah leaves the city and he pouts. He just wants God to kill him now. And no matter how much God asks Jonah to have compassion on these people, Jonah refuses. And the story ends there. So, is the book of Jonah true? Well, which question are we asking? 
Are we asking if a human can survive in a fish for three days? Can we verify with archaeology that the entire Assyrian Empire, the most brutal, violent empire of the day, actually had a mass conversion to Yahweh, like the story tells us? Well, if you're asking those questions, science says the chances of surviving in a fish for three days are bad. Archaeology says that the size of the city doesn't add up to what the Bible story says. And there's no archaeology supporting a mass conversion. So you could say, I don't think the book of Jonah is true. But are you asking the right question? Or should we be asking, wait a minute, is this a valid depiction of reality? Does this story happen all the time? Like, are there good and godly people with hidden prejudices that they may or may not have faced? And will they do anything and everything to avoid the people who they view as dirty and bad? And are those people certain that God is against the dirty people? Because they have Bible verses who they can quote, you know, Nahum, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, they all say that God is against these people. And so do these folks refuse to see or celebrate the way the dirty people, in fact, are actually turning towards God and even doing a better job of listening than they are? And does someone ever come along, someone else, who has this sense that the Spirit of God is breathing a different story about those dirty Ninevites and so they tell that different story, kind of like the story of Jonah, but they're afraid to sign their name to the story out of fear of a backlash. Maybe the crucial question isn't what's empirically verifiable about a guy getting swallowed by a fish. Maybe the question is, well, what's the truth about Nineveh and the Assyrians? Does Nahum and Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, are they telling the whole truth about the Assyrians and the Ninevites? Or do we need to be listening to little old Jonah, this fantastical story of compassion written by a no-name person? God doesn't just tell God's story. God breathes into people's lives and allows a wide diversity of people to tell God's story. And they all tell that story from their vantage point. And so, yeah, sometimes the story is bizarre and hard to imagine. And sometimes it's painful. And sometimes we wonder if God really said that or did that. And sometimes there are different versions of the same story. And sometimes we find conflicting moral and ethical guidance. And yet somehow we find this story with all of its resounding echoes of God breathing into humanity, showing us what it looks like to journey with God and the direction that God is taking us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these, Jesus says. Love does no harm to a neighbor. 
love is the fulfillment of the law. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christ is all and is in all. Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.